All of us this morning are very familiar with the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have seen many images like the one on the screen. We have seen films and dramas. But I have a question for you this morning. Have you ever wondered what Jesus himself thought about his crucifixion? As he hung for six hours suspended between earth and heaven, what was he thinking? Uh, You may know that there is only one chapter in the entire Bible that shows us the cross from his perspective. A thousand years before the Lord Jesus died, Psalm 22 predicted in utter detail everything that he would experience. Now, on the cross, Jesus made seven statements. The fourth of those came from the first verse of Psalm 22. The sixth of those came from the last verse of Psalm 22. What this tells us is that while Jesus was on the cross, he was conscious that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. It also tells us that Jesus must have meditated on Psalm 22 as he experienced every single detail in it. Can I say to you this morning, this is a supernatural book. A thousand years before it happened, to predict it all in precise detail, only God could do that. Only God could do that. This also shows us the great cost of our salvation. Salvation is a gift of grace. Amen this morning? But it is not cheap. And the price that Jesus paid, no one can really fathom. This morning, for a few moments, I want you to look with me at the Psalm of the Cross. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 22. And here we have described for us what Jesus was thinking while he died. It is the cost of our salvation. Please pay careful attention this morning. We are reading together the words and experiences of a criminal who was being crucified. The first thing we want to notice is that on the cross, Jesus experienced spiritual anguish. In verse 1, which is quoted by our Lord in Matthew 27, verse 46, we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man. Now, When Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word forsaken means to be totally abandoned, to be deserted. 
It is the same term that the Apostle Paul used of his friends who deserted him as he faced beheading. Only here from the lips of Jesus, it is not friends who had deserted him. This is God the Father abandoning God the Son. The Bible teaches us that from all eternity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had experienced perfect, unbroken fellowship. But now on the cross, as Jesus cries out, the eternal bond between the Father and the Son was severed. And the Father, for the first time, turned His back upon the Son. Let me ask you this morning, how does God turn His back upon God? How does that even happen? We will never be able to fully understand the experience of Christ in that moment. Now, two statements here in Psalm 22 tell us, in Jesus' anguish, why this happened. In verse 3, he describes God as holy. God the Father is perfectly holy, sinless, and without spot. But Jesus was now bearing the sins of the world. As the sinless Son of God, He bore our sin. The New Testament says, He who knew no sin became sin for us. In the Old Testament, the Israelites had a ceremony on the Day of Atonement. It was called the scapegoat ceremony. And the high priest would take a goat. He would place his hands on that goat and he would confess the sins of the whole nation on that goat. Then he would send the goat out into the wilderness alone to die, symbolically bearing the sins of the nation. And now when we come to the cross, what we understand is this. In a real way, Jesus identified himself with our sin so that he carried our sin. He bore it. God made him to be our substitute and bear our guilt. He became guilty in our place. Think about that for a moment. Every violent murder, every immoral act, Every perverse blasphemy, every selfish lie, and all the rest, he became guilty of. And since the Father cannot look on sin with approval, the Bible says he turned from the Son. There's a second statement in this psalm as to why this happened. When Jesus said, my God, my God, he used a very interesting Hebrew word for the name God. He used the word El. El is a generic name for God. It is a word that means deity. It carries with it the idea that God is the creator, he's the sovereign, he is the judge of all mankind. 
And every sinner can use the word El to speak of God by virtue of the fact that we are His creation and He is our judge. But what is very interesting is Jesus, in His life and ministry, apart from this cry on the cross, never used the word God without also speaking of God as his Father. But now Jesus is under judgment. And as he is under judgment and the Father is pouring out his wrath upon him, as Jesus experiences what it means to be a condemned sinner, he can no longer use the intimate name for God, Father. But he calls him God. If we wonder how Jesus felt about this, did you notice what he said in verse 6? I am a worm and not a man. No wonder in the garden Jesus cried, Father, let this cup pass from me. The anguish of sin, judgment, the alienation from his father caused him to feel less than a man. He felt subhuman on the cross. And you read this, and you have to say, here is the creator, the one who made us from the dust of the earth, and now... He feels less than the lowest creature crawling in the dust. I say to you this morning, for the sinless Son of God to be treated this way is the worst crime that has ever occurred. And yet he volunteered. He volunteered that God might be just and the justifier of all who believe. That's what Jesus was thinking. Now, Secondly, as we continue in this psalm, we discover that Jesus also experienced another kind of suffering. He experienced psychological abuse. Look with me at how the psalm picks up now at verse 6 and describes this. Scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth. And my mother's womb, you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Now listen to these words. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, he says, and all my bones are out of joint. Drop down to verse 16. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. 
One of the worst forms of abuse is to be mocked, ridiculed, and taunted, especially when you are hurting. What is happening to Jesus here we call kicking somebody when they are down. We call this adding insult to injury. I've known young people who have been seriously damaged mentally and emotionally over this kind of abuse. The reason bullying always angers us is because we we know it has long-lasting effects on those who are bullied. Now, what Jesus is saying here is as he looked down in searing pain from the cross... What he saw were crowds like wild animals. Four times in this psalm, he describes them as bulls, lions, or dogs. And four times he says they surrounded him or they encircled him. Like a pack of wild animals, as the crowds under the cross saw him wounded and dying, with great delight they looked forward and couldn't wait to finish him off. Verses 6 through 8 in this psalm are fulfilled exactly in Matthew 27, 39 to 44. And I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn there with me for just a moment. And let's read what Jesus experienced. Matthew 27, 39 to 44. Follow along with me. Then two robbers were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders, and now notice the fulfillment of Psalm 22, mocked him, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. There is no hate in all the world like this hate. To taunt the very one who came to save us is the most vile form of wickedness of all. When I was about eight or nine years old, a group of us on the playground surrounded an obese classmate. And we taunted him about his weight. With fear in his eyes, he desperately turned one direction and the next to ward off the jabs that were thrust at his stomach. 
And the only reason that we did it was the sheer glee of afflicting torment on someone who was vulnerable. Though it happened years ago, almost 40 years, 50 years ago now, every time I see him, I remember his humiliation and how I joined in. If we cannot fathom the mystery of Jesus' spiritual anguish, surely we understand this this morning. Do we not? His disciples fled. His father deserted him. Now the crowds are jeering him. And what does the Bible say? He answered not a word. But the emotional pain... The emotional pain of our Savior was enormous. It was enormous. And there was finally the physical agony. Look at verses 14 to 18 of Psalm 22. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Verse 17. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The Persians would not invent crucifixion until 400 years after these words. The Romans perfected crucifixion to exact the fullest amount of torture on their enemies. And yet 400 years before it was ever devised, Psalm 22 gives a perfect detailed description of what Jesus suffered. Let me enumerate it for you. Verse 14. All my bones are out of joint. The bones of the hands, the arms, the shoulders, and the pelvis. All out of joint. As the victim sagged on the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. The profuse perspiration under the intense suffering on the cross. Verse 14, My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. The stress placed upon the heart as the body sagged, cutting off the air, and the person would rise themselves up, gasping for air. The stress on the heart. Verse 15, Strength exhausted and extreme thirst. My strength is dried up. My tongue sticks to my jaws. 
Verse 16. The hands and the fierce and the feet pierced. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Verse 17. The rib cage extended and exposed as the body hung distended. I can count all my bones. Verse 17, the partial humility, partial nudity, causing humility to one's modesty. They stare and gloat after me. And then even the soldiers gambling for the garments, as fulfilled in Matthew 27, verse 35, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. physical agony that Jesus bore. Perhaps you may know one of the most famous paintings of this scene was done by Rembrandt. This painting done in 1633 is called The Raising of the Cross. As you look at it, you will notice in the center with Jesus are two very curious figures. They stand out. Those who knew Rembrandt say these are self-portraits. He has painted himself into the crucifixion scene. And of course, the question is, why? Why would he put himself there, especially in the lower figure, helping to raise the cross? One theory is this. Rembrandt was confessing his part in it. He was saying, I killed Jesus. My sins put him there. We cannot be sure if that's why Rembrandt did it. But if he did, it is true. You and I belong there. Everything that Psalm 22 says Jesus suffered, you and I, our sins, caused it. And remember, He did it all for love. He did it all for love. The Father's love and His love for you and me. When I was a teenager, the musical Jesus Christ Superstar was very, very big. I remember seeing a production of it when I was 16 years of age. Do you know what the problem with that musical is? Jesus is left in the grave. That's a problem. It takes you through the whole life of Christ, and it ends with the cross. Everyone's hopes are dashed. It's all over. Jesus' followers end up being taken for fools, And now, what did they do? May I say this morning, it wasn't over. Three days later, Jesus rose from the dead. Every pastor in his training to enter the ministry is told, 
Don't ever leave Jesus on the cross. Don't ever leave Jesus on the cross. And King David did not leave Jesus on the cross. You see, Psalm 22 is the psalm of the cross, but Psalm 16 is the psalm of the resurrection. And there's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Jesus also had this psalm in his mind as he was on the cross. Despite the agony of the cross, Jesus could face it with joy because he knew what was coming. And this morning we can leave this place with joy if we know Christ because we know what's coming. Would you turn with me to Psalm 16 for just a moment? What did Jesus know was coming? And if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, what is it that we know is coming because of Him? Let's not leave Jesus in the cross this morning. Let's not leave Him in the grave. Let's see what He knew was coming. Look at verse 9 of this psalm. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Now, here's what Jesus knew. Jesus knew he needed have no fear of death. When the psalmist here says, my flesh will dwell secure, uh, this is an expression that refers to a permanent dwelling place like a home. So that Jesus knew he would ultimately be secure, and the only way that that could be true is if he conquered death. So while the cross was agonizing for the Lord Jesus, he was not afraid. And we need not fear death as well. When I was a teenager, I was very much afraid of death. I had grown up in church and I knew that there were only two places where a person went after death, either either heaven or hell. And because I did not know of my own relationship with the Lord, I was afraid. In fact, can you believe this? There were times at night, as a teenager, before I went to sleep, I had tears in my eyes because I was afraid if I died in the night, I had no idea where I would wake up. But then I came to know Jesus in reality. And I have never been afraid since. In fact, I say to you today, I am ready to die because I'm not afraid. Second thing Jesus knew was that resurrection was coming. Look at this amazing verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to the grave or let your Holy One see decay. Now, this is one verse in the Old Testament that only could apply to one person, and that person is Jesus. Any Old Testament saint could have said the first line, you will not abandon me to the grave. 
Asaph said in Psalm 73, After I die, Lord, you will receive me into glory. But no Old Testament saint ever had their body go into the grave and not experience decay. This is why Peter and Paul, both of them in the book of Acts, said this could not refer to David. In fact, turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. And after quoting these words, I want you to notice what Peter said and how they could not apply to David who wrote them. They must apply to only one person, and that is Jesus. Look at what Peter said after quoting these words. Brothers, verse 29 of Acts 2, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ a thousand years before it happened, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up. And we are all witnesses. The only way both halves of Psalm 16, verse 10, could be fulfilled is by a death and a resurrection. Jesus died, but his body did not decay in the grave. Instead, it experienced resurrection. That is our hope as well. We know that resurrection is coming because Jesus said to all who know him, because I live. You, too, will live. Notice the last thing in this psalm Jesus knew was coming. Jesus knew he'd enjoy eternal life. In verse 11, he says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When the verse says, you will make known to me the path of life, what it means is Jesus, after his death, would experience eternal life in his resurrection from the dead. He would live and never die again in a glorified body in the presence of God, and then he would become the author of of eternal salvation for all who trust him, uh, put here Jesus' words in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so we as well have the certainty, the joy of eternal life beginning now, and ending someday in heaven. Do you notice what this is? It's our whole future. Because Christ died for us and rose again, this is our whole future. We need not fear death. We know the resurrection is coming. And we enjoy eternal life now and forevermore. 
This past week, I read about a, a missionary who was preaching in northern India. There was a Muslim listening to him in the crowd. And afterwards, this Muslim came to the missionary and he said to him, You know what? We Muslims have one thing that you Christians do not have. And the missionary said to him, What is that? And he said, Well, when we go to Medina, where Muhammad died, at least we have a coffin. But when you go to Jerusalem, where Christ died, all you have is an empty grave. And isn't that the difference? Muhammad died and is in a coffin in Medina. Christ is alive forevermore. Forevermore. Bow with me for just a moment, would you? I believe you are here today by divine appointment. I believe that God has brought you here that you might hear the everlasting gospel. And this is a time for you to decide. If Jesus be God and died for you, then you must make a decision about him. You can turn away. You can trust him. But you cannot be neutral. And today as you've seen the love of God. The willingness of Christ. The power that raised him from the dead. So that he alone is Lord Christ and Savior. You need to come to know him today. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, you can speak to God from your heart. And you can say to Him without words something like this Oh God, I know I'm a sinner. I know that my sins place Jesus on that cross. I should have been there, nailing Him taunting him, mocking him. But I believe, Lord Jesus, that you did this because of your love for me. And right now I'm repenting. I'm turning from my own way and I'm turning to you. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Savior. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, And be my Lord. Forgive me of my sins which are many. Grant to me the gift of eternal life. This very day by faith in your sacrifice. Make me a child of God. And then would you say Lord Jesus. 
now from this day forward, God helping me, I will follow you with all my heart. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit today, work faith in the hearts of needy sinners who need to know Christ and life, forgiveness, hell defeated, heaven won, and new life begun. We love you, Lord, today. We worship and serve you. For Jesus' sake, amen.